Hi everyone, it's really lovely to see you here this evening. Thanks for coming along to hear a little bit about Deuteronomy, get the big picture before we dig in a little bit deeper in our sermon series coming up in about a month. Uh, tonight we have our Andy Judd with us. So uh, it's really lovely to have you here, Andy. Andy is one of the faculty at Ridley College, so some of you may have seen him there or around other places. Andy, do you want to tell us a little bit about you and about what you do at Ridley? Yeah, sure. Um, so I do a few things. I teach Old Testament. Hands up if you've done one of my classes. A couple, yeah, okay, yep. <laughs> there we go. St. Jude's really representing in the... Uh, um, yeah, that's right. We'll talk about it afterwards. Um, so I teach Old Testament, uh, occasionally Hebrew and um, biblical interpretation. So just reading slowly and carefully. That's sort of my um, specialty. Um, and then I also do a bit of um, just helping the place run as deputy principal for community. Yeah, cool. So Andy, what do you like about your job? Oh, great question. Um, so the students, obviously. Um, no, but, but actually... Um, most of them. Um, no, no, I really all of them. No, I really, I, I, I remember recently just looking around chapel and just seeing, like, now that I, you know, it's halfway through the year, I know most of the faces around chapel, just thinking, wow, God is really um, doing amazing things. Has brought all these people here, trained them up. I know some of the aspirations they have, where they're going, what they want to do, and I'm just, um, it's just, it's really moving and encouraging to see people kind of really preparing themselves, investing in their spiritual formation, and their, their knowledge and ability to teach, so that then they leave. So the, the, the best and the worst thing is, is that they leave, yeah. actually, yeah. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Andy. Now, you do lots of thinking about the Old Testament, about the Bible. Is there a kind of new, new thing you've been thinking about or something that you're excited about exploring at the moment? Oh, sure, yeah. Um, so I've um, uh, just finished a book, which is... Um, kind of really exciting for me, at least it's, you might find it very boring, you probably will, um, but it's a book on um, the different genres in the Bible and how they work, um, so that's been really fun. I've just got the cover design sent over, which is super exciting. Um, I'll show you if you, if you, you know, want to sneak pre preview. Um, so yeah, just thinking about genres, I think it's really exciting because um, there's lots, I, I just love that the Bible's not just one thing. Like, um, it, I, I once kind of um, had a student uh, when I was doing campus ministry, a university student who was really disappointed that the Bible wasn't just like propositions numbered in order. I'm like, wow, we're such different people because I'm really glad it's not like that. And actually God has given us poetry and he's given us songs and he's given us cooking recipes and he's given us stories and he's given us um, jokes and, and you know, all sorts of um, different types of writing in order to reveal different things about us and the world and him. So I, that's something I'm excited about. Yeah, cool. It sounds great. Do you know when your book's coming out? Yeah, um, in June next year. All right, watch this so space. Save your, <laughs> save your penny. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Andy, I might pray and then yeah, I'll hand over to you. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the richness of your word to us in the Bible. We thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to us and Father, we thank you for the book of Deuteronomy with all of its challenges, with what it teaches about who you are and who the people of Israel were and who we are. Father, thanks so much that Andy can be with us tonight. Please uh, teach us tonight, help us to listen well and 
shape our minds and our hearts as we learn together. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Andy. So I'm going to hand over to Andy now, and uh, there'll be some time for questions later as well. Sure. Okay. Um, But first, uh, before I tell you anything, I want you to tell me something. In fact, what I want you to do is, uh, with one or two people around you, I want you to pull your knowledge and answer this question. What's Deuteronomy all about? Okay, so that's the question. What is Deuteronomy all about? Uh, With one or two people around you, uh, you've got four minutes. Let's make three minutes, actually. Uh, Three minutes to work out what is Deuteronomy all about, and then I'll get um, you to uh, feedback what you've come up with. Okay, so what is Deuteronomy all about? One or two people around you, go. Lots of great um, conversations happening. Why don't we start down, um, down the front here in the front row. Uh, what, what is Deuteronomy all about? What do we know about Deuteronomy? Um, it's about rules. Rules. Sounds fun. <laughs> Excellent. What else? Uh, in, the, in the middle of the row, anything else you want to add? Any Ridley students? <clears throat> <laughs> or spouses of Ridley students? <laughs> Yeah, great. Okay, so picking up some themes here. The rules, particularly as they're entering the land, and Moses' farewell. That's really important. Excellent. Uh, in the middle here, any, um, anything to add? Excellent. You've read Deuteronomy before. That's great. Um, lots of good things in there that you've mentioned. Um, the fact that they're entering into the promised land. This is the second time through because they're a new generation, as you mentioned. The other generation didn't make it quite through the, the wilderness. Um, and, and yeah, the, the, it's a restatement of the, co- of the covenant. That's a very helpful context. And then you've also drawn attention to the, the literary structure, which we'll talk about in a moment, which is it's a series of sermons from Moses, his last final sermons as people enter in. That's super helpful. Um, why don't we uh, take some, uh, any, anything to add from this side of the room, down the front, in the middle perhaps? Don't be shy. If Mo- well, that's a very, very good question. Very good question. So um, we, can, we can talk about uh, authorship um, in, in, later on if you like, but that is a very, very good question because he does die, uh, which generally speaking, when you're writing an autobiography, you don't include that bit. Um, yeah, there's also been the Pentateuch where it says Moses was, was a humble man, the most humble man that ever lived. <laughs> so he either was a comic genius... Uh, or, yeah, someone else was involved in some of it. Yeah, but so we can talk about authorship. That's, um, uh, yeah, something I'm always happy to talk about. Good point. Um, in, in the back, anything to add? Any impressions, maybe? Just what do you think of when you think Deuteronomy? What about in the middle here? I've had a, there's a good conversation going on there before. Just elbow someone next to you as a spokesperson. What he said, okay. We don't accept that in Ridley exams, by the way. <laughs> just for the record, okay. And at the back, any other impressions? I know all the good, th- good you know, you can just say, I was going to say what they all said before me, but anything else to add? Oh, you're happy with that, okay. Excellent. Has anyone just like had, to be honest, no idea what was in Deuteronomy before about 10 seconds ago? Anyone? Yeah. And that's okay too. <laughs> that's absolutely okay. It's, I mean, very few people list it as their favorite book. Um, and it's one of the many books in the Old Testament that probably needs a bit of work from the marketing department. Um, 
like when they submitted, you know, when Moses submitted the kind of book proposal and proposed calling it Deuteronomy, um, perhaps the marketing department could have given him some feedback like that's a very boring name for a book. And it's less boring than the title makes you think maybe. Okay, so actually it is a riveting and emotional and powerful end message uh, for God's people. Uh, and so what I hope is we walk away tonight is, I mean, we already know lots about it, which is great, but have an even clearer picture of what Moses is trying to do in his final goodbye and also why that's a relevant message for us as well. Okay, so I'm really glad you're doing the book of Deuteronomy. I think it's a great book. Um, let's get into it and have a bit of a look at what's um, going on. So um, it's, I think you could call it the longest goodbye in the Old Testament. I think that's fair. Because it is really substantially a series of final exhortations from Moses. And the, the tweet version of that, are they tweets anymore, X's, um, of that is, don't stuff it up again like you did last time. Okay, that's what it's his heart for the people. Uh, he's not quite dead yet, but he is on the way out. And so this is his sort of like, not deathbed, but his sort of final, um, he knows he's dying. Uh, he knows he's not going to enter the land. And the message is, don't do what you did in the book of Numbers. And in the book of Numbers, if, if you've read that, the book, you'll know that um, the reason why it took them 40 years to make a journey which should not take 40 years is because of their disobedience to the law the first time around. Their grumbling and their disobedience meant that they were un that generation was unable they were excluded from entering the promised land. And so this is a powerful exhortation from Moses to say, hey, remember that? Don't do that again. Right? Remember what happened to that generation? Don't be like them. Be the generation that actually rises to the challenge and obeys the law and uh, is allowed to enter into the land, which is, um, as was correctly mentioned, why it's um, literally in the Greek version, it's called the second law or Deuteronomy, um, Deuteronomy. Second, nomos law, so second law. Um, but it's a bit more than a law reheated because as was also mentioned, it, it is this exhortation um, and it is probably one of the most pivotal Old Testament books. Okay, so it's really great that we're studying it because it is so influential in the rest of the Bible. The prophets continually refer back to the book of Deuteronomy to explain, well, what went wrong, basically. And then Jesus shapes his ministry around um, the covenant, which is laid out in the book of Deuteronomy too. So it's very, very influential, Old Testament and New, New Testament. Uh, it's frequently quoted, but even more frequently, its ideas are just seeping out of every page. So it's, knowing a bit about Deuteronomy really helps to understand the rest of the Bible as well. Uh, another uh, really crucial thing about it is it gives us a bit of a, a closing chapter on the figure who has dominated the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible so far, uh, Moses. So Moses is a towering figure in the Old Testament. Uh, he's a hugely significant personality. And this is his kind of swan song. This is his sort of last um, testament, his dying uh, message. We, we left him in the book of Numbers um, on the edge of the promised land, uh, having led the grumbling people through the desert. But then he does something then in Numbers. It's not clear exactly what it is. But he does something which means actually he will be excluded from going into the promised land as well. And so now he knows that he, like the previous generation, will not enter in. What is he going to say? If you had one sermon to pass on to the people of St. Jude's before you went the way of all the earth and died, what would you say 
to this people to ensure that they will continue forever in, in following in God's um, promises. What would be your final sermon, John, to the people of St. Jude's? Well, Moses gives you a pretty good starting point. Hopefully this is not your final sermon here. Anyway, I don't mean to wish death upon your vicar. Um, but it's something to think about, right? Like what would, what would you give these people to carry them forward into the future? Um, so he does die um, in chapter 34 of Deuteronomy after delivering his long goodbye sermons uh, and he's buried in an unmarked grave just outside the promised land which is a bittersweet ending to this figure isn't it Uh, given how crucial he was in bringing the people this far I can read it from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34 Moses the servant of the Lord this is 34 verse 5 died there in Moab as the Lord had said he buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor but to this day, no one knows where his grave is. So this towering figure ends up uh, anonymous, lost to history. Verse 10, though, says, Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Okay, so this is the end of Moses. Uh, What does he have for us? Well, it's a series of three sermons plus a little bit of a tag at the end. Um, Now, if I can get the... um the structure slide for Deuteronomy. There you go. That's sort of how I think about it. If your brain works like this, it might be helpful. You've got the three sermons, the third one a bit shorter than the others, but these three sermons and then the epilogue, uh, which kind of closes out the story. Now, we've had sermons before in the Pentateuch. Right? We have had some sermons, but they've mostly been little sermons embedded in an overarching narrative. Whereas in the book of Deuteronomy, it's the other way around. We have these big sermons and the narrative is embedded within those sermons for a change. So it's a different, it's a change of gear. It's not just a a repetition of what we've had in the book of Exodus. It's a whole new thing. Um, And they're really, I mean, I say sermons, they're prophetic exhortations. They're um, kind of an expounding of the law, but not just repeating the law, trying to get people to do the law. Because it's one thing to know the law, it's another thing entirely to get people motivated to actually keep the law. And that's what Moses is trying to do. That's why there's so much overlap between the material we have in Deuteronomy and the legal material that we've already had in Exodus and Leviticus, etc. There there are some differences, but it's not really new information. No one's shocked to discover um, that you're meant to worship one God only. So, So why do we have the book of Deuteronomy? Well, it's because... It's designed to motivate, not just inform. It's designed to move the affections. It's designed to to give people a kick up the proverbial to get them going so that they will keep the law. So he's actually teaching the heart as much as he's giving information. I think that's really great for us to know because it's not just about understanding what the rules are. It's about understanding why we should keep them and how important it is that we listen Uh, The other thing um, about this kind of persuasive goal is that while they're sermons delivered in the moment, they're also sermons designed to be repeated in every next generation that comes, right up to us. Okay, so yes, they're, they're actual sermons, I believe, delivered by Moses to a real group of people, but with the goal that they would be dwelt on and repeated in subsequent generations, passed down. 
Uh, In fact, on top of that, in chapter 31, Moses actually uh, writes down the law, this law, which you take it is, is Deuteronomy, and instructs the people to have the whole thing read to the people every seven years. So this must be seven years since you last did the series at St. Jude's as faithful Old Testament following uh, churches, which is good to see. That's chapter 31, verse 9 to 13. Um, So what's the function of this? What's it doing here? Um, It's um, trying to operate as a a kind of a a constitution almost for the the people of Israel. Um, The book is trying to define the relationship between God and Israel in an ongoing way. So it's not just individual laws to be kept, it's actually how their relationship is going to work moving forward. Um, think of it a bit like God as the, the, the king and, and his loyal subjects. What's the constitution? How is it going to work? What are, what are the boundaries in that relationship? What can they expect from God and what can God expect from them? So it's actually a little bit, um, uh, how nerdy are you feeling tonight? A little bit? A little bit? Okay, so it's actually a little bit like a Hittite treaty in its form. Okay, this is something that Bible scholars like to think about. Uh, if this doesn't float your boat and it's late on a Monday night, just ignore this bit. Um, but it, it does actually have a lot of similarities between a Hittite treaty, uh, which is like, hi, I'm a really powerful foreign king and I've just invaded you, so here's how this relationship's going to work. You're going to show me undivided loyalty and I'm going to not destroy you. Okay, that's sort of the way it works in a, in a, in a, a kind of... Uh, um, human king to human subject system. Well, Moses kind of picks up that form, but applies it to God, which is really interesting that he does that. Because it helps them to understand that, just like you wouldn't double-cross your Hittite overlord, you don't have other gods. Right? You owe your undivided loyalty to that God. And so it's really interesting, Moses is kind of using, or God is using, this form of the treaty document in order to teach the people what it means to have one God. Keep in mind that having one God has not really been a thing to this point. Right? They're not, like, we are by nature polytheists as humans. And God is teaching them through this covenant document that, no, no, when I said no other gods, I meant no other gods. I don't want to be like your favorite of the gods. I don't want you to have any other gods. And so this document is helping them to understand what that means. So um, you can kind of see how the sermon, the the legal code treaty thing might be helpful for persuading the people of the importance of obeying God. Um, And it really is, okay, if you want to take away one thing from this summary of the book of Deuteronomy, it's this. There's um, Bible scholars, because we get paid by the word, um, we come up with like complicated words for very simple ideas. Okay, so I'll give you one. So they talk about the Deuteronomistic principle. And the Deuteronomistic principle is a very, very simple thing which has a very complex word because we get paid by the word. And let me let let you in on the Deuteronomistic principle. You obey, you get to stay. Very simple. You obey, you stay. In other words, you're about to go into the promised land. Here are the rules. You obey those rules, you get to stay in the land. If you disobey these rules, then the land will vomit you out. It's actually the image used in Leviticus. The land will vomit you out from your impurity. But it's a very simple, it's a very simple deal. You obey, you stay. If you want to sound like a Bible scholar, you would say the Deuteronomistic principle, but I just think you obey, you stay. Okay? And that principle carries us right through 
to the end of the independent nation-state Israel, right? shortly before Jesus shows up. Okay, because when they're reflecting back on their history as a people, when the prophets are like, hey, how come we got kicked out of the land? Someone's like, oh, there was a thing. There was this rule. What did they call it? The Deuteronomistic principle. Moses said something about it. Oh, yes, you obey, you stay. We didn't obey, so maybe that's why we didn't get to stay. Okay, so the prophets, they're using that to decode their experience after being catastrophically kicked out of the land. Okay, so the, the, this Deuteronomistic principle, this principle from Deuteronomy, this you obey, you stay thing, is really the logic that drives the Old Testament forward from this point. Right, because at every point, they're going to get this warning, hey, you're not obeying the law. You're not going to get to stay. Because God doesn't show favoritism. All right, so he's given these people the land, but also he reminds them, you know what happened to the last people who lived here? Well, they didn't obey, so they didn't get to stay either. And this will apply to you, Israel, as well. Okay, so this is a very important principle for understanding the whole Old Testament and sets us up for understanding uh, what's going forward. So here is Moses, the preacher, trying to get them to obey so they can stay. And how is he going to do that? Well, he calls, uh, this is Deuteronomy chapter 30, <clears throat> he calls heaven and earth as witnesses against them that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. Choose life so that you and your children may live. So here is Moses, the preacher, just wanting them to make good choices so that not only they but their children can, can live in security and harmony and peace. Obey so you may stay. Blessings and curses. Choose life not death. Now, spoiler alert, they choose death. Uh, but that comes later. From now, it's all very optimistic right, that they'll be able to actually continue their obedience in the book. Okay, so that's the, the big picture. What is Deuteronomy about? You obey, you stay. Basically, that's all we need to know. But we're going to do, go into more, more detail about what's actually in all these. Um, just, I think you're doing up to chapter 12. Is that right? No? Yep. Excellent. So you're going to be focusing in your um, teaching series at St. Jude's on 1 to 12, but I'm going to give you a sense of like swimming around the whole book just so you know where that fits in and you know what's going to come. Does that sound good? Yeah, so we'll focus on that, um, but we'll also have a look at what comes afterwards because uh, I like spoilers. Okay, so the first thing we get, as you can see up there on the screen, is sermon number one, which goes from chapter one uh, to chapter four, verse 43. So after a brief summary, I guess, of the story so far, kind of Moses reminds them how they got to this point. Moses begins his first sermon with some reflections on the journey. Okay, they've come from Mount Sinai, or you'll sometimes see Mount Horeb, same place. Um, <clears throat> they've come now to the plains of Moab. Um, I don't have a map, I should have brought a map, but um, they're basically coming in from the east, coming into the promised land. Okay, so they've come around the desert. They've spent a long time. The, the, the river Jordan's going right down the middle. Promised land, scary Goliaths, um, kind of uh, uh, that way. Um, they're coming in from the east, and they're about to cross over. And they're thinking, wow, this place is great. Okay, so that, that's their kind of path in. They've got nothing but desert and death and wandering behind them, but nothing but promises and scary-looking people in front of them. Um, and so at this point, they're, they're kind of, there's no going back, really. And this is on the plains of Moab, kind of just outside the promised land. They're about to cross over in. 
and are about to take hold of uh, everything that they've been promised. Um, <coughs> and, and Moses kind of begins by reminding them why they're not there already. So, as we mentioned, there was this issue within the book of Numbers with the slight issue of the disobedience of the people. Uh, and so they didn't believe God, they didn't respect him, they disbelieved, dis, you know, distrusted, disobeyed God. And so um, that's why they had this 40-year delay before coming in and also why Moses doesn't get to go into the land. So it's kind of reminding them of the kind of, it's actually a very sad note to start on really. Um, I don't know how that preaching would go down in our culture today, but it starts by basically telling them their problems and, and why they're in the situation that they are. Um, and then he uh, commissions Joshua and really lands the sermon in, in chapter four with this simple message um, well, you should really obey the law. Done. Now, Israel, hear the decrees and laws that I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. If you want to stay in the land, make sure you obey the law. Uh, but actually, there is more to it than that. It's not just self-interest. The other reason why they should obey the law is so that the rest of the nations will look to them for guidance as to how to kind of live with God, right? So there's actually this idea <coughs> that um, they're going to show the world that they are a nation with God living in their midst. And this is really important because it reminds us that this whole story of Israel takes part in a bigger story. So you remember, like, back in the book of Genesis, there was this whole fall thing. Do you remember Adam and Eve, garden, snake, fruit, ate the fruit, shouldn't have eaten the fruit, condemns all humanity to life outside the garden. You know that whole thing, the fall? Um, okay, so that's the setup for the story of Israel. Because at that point, when, when humanity, I mean, though we, we were given such privileges, right? We were meant to rule over the world as God's representatives, his images on earth, right? With nothing held back from us, with all the authority that we have, we kind of blew it and we disbelieved, disrespected, disobeyed God. And so we didn't get to enjoy kind of the Garden of Eden. We got kicked out of the Garden. At that point, God could have, and probably some people would say should have, given up on us. You know, handed the world over to the dolphins and let them have a shot, see how they do. But at that point, God doesn't do that. He actually kind of bizarrely commits to working through humanity to bring the world back to the Garden of Eden to worship him again. Right? And the way he does that is also kind of weird. He very, Genesis is kind of a strange book. It starts off with this kind of cosmic story of good and evil, and then very quickly becomes a story about Adam and his dysfunction, sorry, Abraham and his dysfunctional family. Why does it do that? Well, because Abraham's family is the pilot light that will bring the world back to worship. You might be thinking, what is a pilot light? I can tell you because my hot water system died. Okay, so the pilot light is that tiny little flame inside your hot water system that stays lit all the time tiny little flight like it couldn't heat a bath for an ant okay but that little light is what lights the whole hot water system so my plumber explained and enables you to have a hot shower right? this pilot light is very very important because if that pilot light goes out you're having a cold shower now to stretch the metaphor if i may israel is designed to be the pilot light from which point the whole world will be brought to worship god hot shower work with the metaphor Right? That, is the that, that is the whole point of Israel. It's not just that they would be a holy bubble in the middle of a kind of 
fallen world, but actually that they would be the, the way that God brings the whole world back to worship him. So it's crucial that this nation, this pilot project, this pilot light stays true, stays faithful to their calling to be a special people, to be uh, an example. And that's what Moses is uh, leaning into here. He's, he's saying basically, the world needs to see that we are a people with God in our midst. And that's the point in chapter four. <coughs> so Moses leans into there. I mean, the preacher, he's, he was such a great preacher. You can tell even from the words. He leans into their experience of God at Sinai. All right, their experience. He says, you were there, weren't you? Now, actually, they weren't there. That's the whole point. But he says, you were there. You saw it. It wasn't your ancestors who were there. It was you. And again, Moses, you're mistaken. He's getting old. He's, he's forgotten where we are. But no, no, he knows who they are. And he's reminded that he's, he's placing them at that place. A bit like the, the wonderful gospel tune, you know, where it's kind of, I was there when they crucified my Lord. Now, the point is you weren't there, but you were there. And so Moses is making them imagine that they were there with their ancestors, seeing firsthand what God has done and therefore being spurred on and inspired to make sure that they continue living for him now in the present. So the reason they shouldn't make idols is because you were there, you saw that God does not live as an image, uh, does not have <coughs> the image of a man or image of a, a beast. You saw what was there at Mount Sinai. Um, and this experience that they saw God and they had God's presence with them is what will ensure, is what will lay the foundation for their obedience, for their exclusive devotion to the one God. And he lands this um, sermon with some great rhetorical questions. He says, has any other people, this is chapter 4, verse 33, has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Rhetorical question, expected answer, no. Has any other God tried to ever take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by mighty hand and outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? Again, rhetorical question, expected answer, no. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. Oh, spine-tingling stuff. Good on you, Moses. It's a great, a great sermon. Okay, that's the first sermon. Reminding them their story, placing them within the story, because we all need a story to belong to. Uh, we, all, we all need to see ourselves as, as part of a story, and, and here is their story, here is our story um, that he's offering. Um, the second sermon <coughs> um, happens in chapter 4, verse 44. Um, there's a bit of a break when they appoint some cities of refuge, um, and then uh, the next sermon starts. So this one is basically fleshing out what exclusive devotion to Yahweh will look like and giving some kind of examples, some worked examples um, of what obedience looks like. Um, essentially, it's a kind of a two ways to live sermon. Um, do this, don't do that. You know, are you going to choose life or death? Um, what will it be? Life, death, you choose. Uh, it begins with a reminder that the words they heard at Sinai were words directly from God. Uh, and then this is actually where we get the, the Ten Commandments um, uh, kind of repeated um, for them. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2, the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, or Sinai. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us. Again, Moses, you may be mistaken, I believe that was our ancestors. But no, he's actually making the point that this was your story. 
you actually were there, uh, figuratively, at the mountain. The Lord made this covenant not just with your ancestors, but with all of us who are alive today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire from the mountain. So I love the immediacy of the law here. This is not like a dry and dusty statute book. This is a living document, a living relationship. Um, and it's as relevant to this current generation as to any other generation. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my 20 minute in water. Thank you, as, as my writer asked. Thank you so much. Okay, um, and then chapter six, we get um, this beautiful focus on how the law is going to be uh, taken forward into the next generation. Let's read it. It's worth reading a little bit. Chapter six, verse four. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that, that little bit there is actually um, known as the Shema, from the um, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, which means the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's a key um, sort of Jewish text still today and a key part of um, Judaism, announcing the, the one God. But then it goes on and actually fleshes out the ethical implications of that. Love the Lord your God, verse 5, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Remember when Jesus is getting, um, uh, in, in the Gospels, he's kind of quizzed on, on, on what, it kind of t- what it takes to live rightly with God. Well, this is, this is up there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Some of the Gospels add mind. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. And I love this. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Uh, what a great reminder that our, our job is not just to be followers of God, but actually to pass it on to the next generation. This is like the youth ministry, children's ministry verse, isn't it? Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. I actually think I have a picture here now, I think, of um, some people with a tefillim, um, possibly. Yeah, so this is actually Orthodox Jews do this. You might see um, one of those young chaps um, going, so he's going to a a bar mitzvah, son of the covenant, um, bat mitzvah if he was a girl, um, which is when they sort of come of age as members of this covenant community. Can you see the little box that some of them are wearing tied to their forehead? They literally have this verse and a couple of others tied to their forehead out of deference to this command, as, as I guess a reminder that they're to carry this law around with them. Thanks, Now We can go back to the structure slide. So tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads, figuratively, but literally if you want to as well. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Because obeying God in the long term is actually uh, going to require them to teach their children uh, the right way to live. It's going to require zero tolerance as well towards bad influences on them and on their children. Uh, They're going to have to rule out compromise. So this in chapter 7 is where you get quite confronting commands about what to do uh, with seven particular names, nations who are are bad influences, who have been come under God's judgment. You can talk about them if you like in question time, but um, they're they're to get rid of those bad influences. Um, And um, it's I guess, why, why do they have to be so ruthless? Why do they have to be so extreme? Well, it's because the stakes are literally the whole world. Remember back to the start of the story, Adam and Eve, save the world, work with humanity, pilot light, pilot project. This all rests on them. 
Right? They are that pilot light, that pilot project for the whole world. And so if they become like Canaanites at this point, all bets are off. They must continue and follow God. They must not allow their children to be turned away to other gods. Um, sadly, actually, that is exactly what happens. But they're not, at this stage, they, they must not let that happen. And the other um, important thing here is it's very clear that they're not chosen because they're special. I mean, they are special because they're chosen, but they're not chosen because they're special. That's very important for them to understand. It's not because you're more numerous, not because you're more powerful, not because you're smart or better looking. It's just because God chose you. And it's a wonderful lesson for us um, who would be tempted to presumption to look down on other people. Um, and also a warning to them too. Well, if you disobey, then you won't get to stay either. If they uh, make the same mistakes as the people who lived in the land before them, then they're also going to get expelled from the land. Like the nations, chapter 8, verse 20, the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Uh, so that's um, kind of where the, um, the sermon kind of leads us. The rest of the sermon, chapters 12 to 26, is, um, is really kind of expounding some of the um, some of the laws we've seen in the Ten Commandments a little bit more um, clearly. Um, it roughly, I mean, don't make too much of this, but it roughly follows the order of the Ten Commandments too. Um, so uh, Commandments 1 and 2 are about no other gods. Um, chapter 12 is all about don't worship a Canaanite um, shrine. So it's kind of giving a bit more um, detail about what being faithful to God's law uh, will give. Um, and you can kind of read um, through them if you like. Um, and then in chapter 27, we move from kind of explaining the rules to ratifying the covenant, if you like, signing on the dotted line, signed, sealed, delivered. Um, so as soon as they cross over into the promised land, they must write the words of the law onto plastered stones, and they'll put them on Mount Ebal. Uh, and then the half of the tribes down on Mount Ebal, I think this was mentioned before, Ebal, Gerizim, uh, the blessings, cursings. And from Mount Ebal, these are two mountains which are kind of like within sight of each other. From Mount Ebal, the tribes bless the people. And then from um, uh, Mount uh, Gerizim, the Levites pronounce curses on anyone who does not keep the law. So it's really getting them to act out their obedience at this point. You know, you basically, this is the altar call, or one of the altar calls in, in the sermon. Right? Make a commitment. Are you, are you on the side of God or are you against him? Uh, he's setting up the time for decision is now. Will you obey? Will you stay? Will you have blessings or cursings, life or death? That's the second sermon. The third sermon is the, but what if you stuff up sermon? Okay, so this is the final sermon. What if you don't? So it's kind of funny because it's almost like Moses knows exactly what's coming. And he does because obviously God's told him. Uh, when you and your children, so when, when you, um, he says in, in chapter 30, when you stuff this up, Here's how it's going to go. And he actually holds out um, hope that because God is God, that won't be the end of their relationship. Okay? When you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart, with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from the nations. Okay, and, the, and that, that's the, uh, the final sermon. From there on, there's a bit of an epilogue about Moses' last days. Um, 
The book ends by describing Moses' actual death, uh, appointing Joshua, who will take on the reins from here, leading the people into the promised land, dividing up the land, etc. This is the kind of be strong and courageous bit when he passes the baton to uh, Joshua. Um, Moses does a bit more foreshadowing of what's going to come in the future. Um, The uh, law is written down, put in the ark, um, this, Moses teaches the Israelites a song, so we have some worship time at the end there. Um, he repeats the call to live long and prosper in the land. He reminds Moses, God reminds Moses of why he doesn't get to go into the land. Um, and then uh, Moses kind of gives his deathbed blessings on the different um, tribes, also giving a bit of a, a future of, a, a kind of picture of the future. And then that's the end. So that's sort of the... Um, the end of the, of the Pentateuch, uh, before we get into the book of Joshua. Uh, taking a brief step back, I've kind of given away what the summary would be, but just to recap, we really <coughs> um, meet the covenantal love of God in the book of Deuteronomy in a really special way. One of the striking themes I think that we get in the book is just how patient God is in his love, that he continues to work with Abraham's children despite their disobedience, uh, giving them great uh, privileges, great role in the world, um, and uh, you know, expressing his loving covenant to them. So it's a, it's a really important book for us learning about um, what it means to be the people of God and what it requires of us in return, to love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Uh, there's no space in this relationship for any other gods. Okay? There's just no space. There is only one God. You will only worship one God. Um, and then we get the, um, the two ways to live, the kind of choose life kind of theme, the you obey, you stay. Um, and, and really, I, I, the way I think about the Pentateuch is kind of a triangle. Maybe I'll end on this. Um, the whole goal since the Garden of Eden has been to get the band back together. That is to get God and his people together living in the land, experiencing God's, there you go, there's my triangle, uh, experiencing God's, thanks Nat, experiencing God's blessing, Okay, so when God and his people are in God's place, be that the Garden of Eden or the Promised Land, good things happen. There's peace and stability and prosperity and safety and, and everything is good. But in order for that to stay there, people have to get used to living with a holy God and that requires obedience to the law. And so all the way through the Pentateuch, we've been getting closer and closer and closer to this triangle getting together. Right, as God's people have grown, um, as <coughs> we've got closer and closer to the land, we've, we've been inching, it's like a game of snakes and ladders, right? We're just kind of uh, three steps forward, one, two steps backwards, but we've been getting closer and closer. And now we're here, God and his people are in the land, almost in the land. Don't stuff it up. And as uh, Christians, we sort of have a different spin on this. Um, because we don't come to Jesus in the promised land in Palestine or in the Garden of Eden for that matter. We actually experience God's presence and blessing a different way. But the dynamics that where God is, good things are, we do experience. And we do through Jesus come to this happy place. Uh, and this setting up, this, this is all setting up the story that Jesus is the conclusion to. So it's incredibly um, important, it's incredibly influential throughout the rest of the Old Testament um, and makes sense of a lot of what the prophets say from here on. So I'm going to pause there for a moment. I've thrown a few things at the wall. You may have questions, which would be okay. So um, feel free to, um, to hit me and I'll do my best. Uh, as you're thinking, I'll take another sip of that delicious water 
which was brought to me earlier. We might use the mic for people asking questions just yeah, so great. we have it on the recording as well. Um, sometimes there's some differences in like the law that's written in like say Exodus and Deuteronomy, say like the Ten Commandments are written slightly differently. Is, what do we make of the differences? Are they just, do, does it matter? Do we brush over them or is there like some importance in how it's written differently? Yep, so there's differences between how the Ten Commandments in Exodus and Deuteronomy are, are given. Uh, there's other uh, kind of small differences between the um, yeah, the Deuteronomy version of events and, and other parts in the Bible. Uh, yeah, like it's good to notice, yeah, and good to dwell on. Um, I wouldn't lose a heap of sleep over it. Like they're not, um, thou shalt commit adultery. Um, like they're not way out. There was a Bible actually printed once which did leave the not out there um, back in the 16th century. So that's a good one to get um, if you're interested in rare books. Um, no, but there's nothing like major like that, but they're like slightly different things. So like in the Sabbath, you know, is the reason why you're given the Sabbath because it reflects God's work in creation or is it so that you may go along in the land? Like they're slightly different. I think um, what we get is different perspectives on the one kind of covenantal reality um, and slightly different, I mean, a, a bit like, you know, I, you know when you hear a sermon at the 9 a.m., the 11 a.m., and the 6 p.m., like it's the same sermon, the same stories, but there's a slightly different, for different people, it's kind of expressed slightly different. And I think that's kind of what's often going on here. It's one message, but they're being given to us in different moments for different reasons, in different traditions. Um, they're all consistent, as far as I can see, um, but there are subtle differences. So yeah, notice them. I wouldn't go down the kind of, YouTube documentary rabbit hole on like explaining those differences, the sources and stuff. I think that's a bit of a dead end. Um, but yeah, just note it. Yeah, feel free to notice them and do like it's good that you're, you're learning Deuteronomy rather than just kind of always going to Exodus because you get a different, like slightly different spin on these things. But yeah, thanks for the question. No, it's all clear. Solved all the problems in, in Deuteronomy. That's great. I was asked once to give a talk on the Shema for St. Jude's. The person living next to us is a Jew, and he actually lent me his phylacteries, which I wore at St. Jude's. So that was quite fun. But in doing the research, um, you shall love the Lord your God. A lot of the commentators suggested that loving is obedience and left it at that. And the question I want to ask is, what's the difference between loving and obeying? Yeah, it's a great question, isn't it? I think they're tied up together when it comes to uh, God. Uh, and I, th I think it's kind of, I mean, when we're trying to understand what it means to worship one God, which, again, this is new for them. It's new for us, probably. Uh, there's lots of different human relationships that are drawn into this picture to help them understand that. And, and one of the loves, if you like, that they're given here is, is the, the loyalty that you show to your, uh, the king who protects you 
the king who you are loyal to, the king who makes sure that you don't get beaten up by all the other kings. So that, that undivided loyalty, I think, is pretty close to the centre of what love means uh, when it comes to loving God in Deuteronomy. Now, there's other dimensions as well. There's the emotional side and everything, but it's not just like a, you know, I love you because I feel nicely about you, but it's, it's a love which will allow no one else in to threaten that exclusive relationship. And I, th- I think that's probably in the context of Deuteronomy a good place to start, that undivided loyalty between a people and their God, between a people and their king, between nation and ally. Um, yeah, what do you think? I'm just wondering also whether there's a sense of gratitude about grace, about God's rescue, um, uh, the overwhelming sense that you've done this even though I don't deserve it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm trying to explore it further because I think it's much more than just a, uh, a, a cerebral interaction, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Why, why does Moses start with this story of where they've been? If not to remind them that like, they, they were slaves, and God has plucked them out of slavery and given them a new identity. Not just a new identity, a new life. The privilege of being in this relationship with God who he doesn't exploit them, and doesn't just whip them to make bricks without straw. He actually, you know, these words are life. Right? They're there for your good that I've given you these things, says the Lord. So, oh, I think absolutely their, their gratitude um, now, people think that the Old Testament is all about salvation by works and the New Testament by grace, but actually it's all grace, right? Because they're given this law after they've already been rescued from slavery. They've already experienced the exodus. They've already been given the law. God has already appeared. And now you respond in gratitude and love and, and devotion to God. Uh, I think that's important to actually learn that, that rhythm. There's always grace before obedience. Yeah. The God who feeds them and doesn't just feed them with manna, but also with every word proceeding out of his mouth. So there's a sense yeah. of nourishment there. Yeah, these, these laws aren't just arbitrary, they're for your good. They're for your good. You know, think about the Sabbath. How many Sabbaths were they getting in slavery in Egypt? You know, how, how often were they getting a day off? They weren't even getting straw to make bricks, let alone a day off. But now... You get a day, you know, this is, this is the law. You must have a day off. <laughs> it's too good to be true, but it is true. Yeah, I think, I think it's a really great context. And the sto- it's really important to see those laws within the story and see that they are given for our good, that actually God does love and care for his people and provide for them. And the word, I mean, law sounds so much like I mean, this is not sort of like the traffic code or the Goods and Services Tax Act or whatever. Like, this is not statute. These are words to live by. Like, these are gifts which reveal and structure life for our good. So, yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. Thank you for sending us down that way of thinking. Maybe one last question. Yeah, sure. Um, so, a question like, about your point making that you made, um, Israelites are encouraged to choose life over choosing death. Um, um, 
Could you flesh out a little bit more, um, maybe in the book of Deuteronomy, what does it mean to choose death? And would you mean, or would you say that other nations rather than Israelites, who, do, who, who doesn't know, who, uh, Israelites, uh, of course, other nations don't know God at that time, uh, Yahweh, um, they are actively choosing death rather than life. Yeah, so that's a really good question. So where, where are they choose, what does it mean to choose death? Well, it works at a few different levels, doesn't it? Because um, life, is, life is God's. It all comes from God. So you, you declare independence from the author of life, you have a problem. Like whose air are we all breathing right now, right? We're not really self-sufficient. And so um, partly there's just a, if you want to declare independence, if you want to shake your puny fists at the God who, you know, keeps you alive and keeps the sun up and all that kind of thing, um, things are not going to go well for you. So there's this consistent theme that God brings life and being alienated from him just only leads to death. And we we see that all the way through the Pentateuch, like um, the way that God sustains life, he gives food during famines, he... um, preserves God's people despite all the, um, the difficulties. He provides water, he provides food, and he, he keeps them alive. He, um, you know the genealogies in this whole bit, first five books? People think they're really boring, but actually they're, mir- they're the main miracle of the, the books of Moses. Because every single line in that genealogy is a miracle. A miracle that any of them survived to have babies, to carry on the promise. So there's a the bigger sense just that life comes from God, so if they're in relationship with God, they get more life. Now, I know that the other nations do also. God kind of sends the rain on the unrighteous as well as the righteous. He does allow them to live. But ultimately, you want life, you need God. Um, then there's a kind of, so that's the main, then there's the particular covenantal side of it, which is if you disobey these laws, God will punish you by kicking you out of the land. So you lose access to all the prosperity of the land, you lose access to all the food he provides, and you may well suffer death at the hands of, you know, in God's judgment. Okay, so there's a very real prospect of God's judgment, which would be death. That's the second level. And then the third level is even more specific, which is that a lot of the laws are actually calibrated towards life. All right, they're actually, the laws are remarkable for the way they, they care about life. That's in Exodus as well as in Deuteronomy. Um, the death penalty is very sparingly given, Right? It's, it's not like you steal a loaf of bread, someone's going to chop your head off. Right? Life is precious within this code. Um, and a lot of the laws are around actually valuing life, valuing human life, and not just my life. Like everyone values their own life, but what's remarkable is that everyone's life is valuable in God's covenant law, uh, from the top right down to the bottom. Um, and that's, that provides great protection for the people at the bottom of society too because they, um, you know, only God owns their life. No one else can take that away. So I think that those three levels, just a general thing, God provides all life. The covenantal thing, which is you choose to disobey, you will die. And then in the specifics of the laws, the um, emphasis on life, I think we see come through in what God values as, as the author of life. Cool. Great, thanks. Andy, uh, uh, that's been really helpful. I've really appreciated it. Let's thank Andy for coming out tonight. Thank you all also for coming and thank you for great questions at the end there. We've got some supper in the cafe. If you'd like to stay and chat, 
ask Andy some other questions. He's happy to chat for a bit. So thank you. Come and enjoy and have a good evening. Thanks, Dan.